Martha's Cross. Uh, we're uh, going through the book of Mark, um, and we are in Mark 14 today, verses 32 to 42. And you can find it in these purple Bibles with the purple um, end, so to speak. Um, they're on page 768. Donna, would you like to give out the Bibles today? So if you need a Bible, uh, stick up your hand. See people. Hopefully we'll get rid of them all. Yes, one. Yes, there's one there. There's one over here, Donna. There's over there. Perfect. So today I want to talk about something that we all face probably most of our lives every day, and that is pressure. Um, the pressure of deadlines, peer pressure, uh, pressure of expectation maybe from ourselves or maybe from others. We all face pressure. And the dictionary definition, if you ever wondered about pressure, is a continuous physical force exerted on an object by something in contact with it, or the use of persuasion or intimidation to make something, someone do something. Now, I in my everyday life, don't come across a continuous physical force exerting pressure on me. But I do often find that the second definition of people persuading, intimidating, even society, culture, making me, trying to make me do something, pressuring me to do something with my work ethic, with things like that. And we can all feel pressure. There was a survey a couple of years ago by the Prince's Trust uh, where it said 61% of 16 to 25-year-olds believe that social media creates an overwhelming pressure on them to succeed. And 57% of those say comparing themselves to friends on social media makes them feel inadequate. That's our 16 to 25 year olds, our next generation, they're feeling inadequate just by going on Facebook, by going on Instagram, by going on all these social media platforms. And there's a song um, that you might know, might not know by the Zootons. Does anyone remember the Zootons? They were like an, a naughty's band, yes. A little puddly naughty's band called Pressure Point where it said, I can't get this pressure point out of my head. I feel it in work. I feel it in bed. It's all about pressure. And actually, if you listen to it, it's quite a stressful song to listen to. It's just designed to, to stress you out. But obviously, many of us will know the song Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie, don't we? You know, ding, 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 that song. And I didn't actually know the lyrics. I only know the pressure until I read it this week. It's pressure pushing down on me, pushing down on you. Under pressure that burns a building down, splits a family in two, puts people on streets. I never really realized what that was, what those lyrics were until I read that this week. And as we read this passage, we see that Jesus is under immense pressure. The pressure of the cross, which has been in the background for so long, is looming more. The pressure of the betrayal of one of his closest friends, the pressure of uh, his rest of his disciples, he knows that they're going to desert him at this point. And he comes to Gethsemane, this garden, where it's meant, where Gethsemane means oil press, where things are squeezed, where things are pressured. There's pressure all around him. And into this moment, we find the solution for Jesus and the solution for us to the problem of pressure. And that solution is prayer. And I love what Taryn talked about last week, where she came and she shared about the importance of worship, of untaming our heart once more and allowing ourselves to freely worship. But today I feel like coupled with that worship is the importance of prayer. That Jesus is calling us to prayer once more. And that's how we deal with pressure. As prayer is greater than pressure. And we'll see how that's the case as we read on. But first let's read our passage. We can find it here in Mark 14. Uh, I'll read from verse 32. It will appear on screen behind. It says this. They went to a place called Gethsemane. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Why don't we just pray? as we dive into this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come before you and learn more about you through your word. And Lord, we just pray for this morning that you would speak to each one of us. You would meet us where we're at and the situations you're facing that you would we would find those answers in your word today. You would bring comfort, guidance, strength, and equipping, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, to deal with pressure, Jesus models a way that we can turn that pressure into prayer, that pressure into praise, and that pressure into God's presence. And prayer is greater than pressure as prayer prepares us for battles. There's a lot of peace today. Just, just to give you a heads up, there's a lot of peas, so make sure you've got pressure, prepare, prepare, prepares for battle. So Jesus has been living with that shadow of the cross in the back of his mind all the way through the Gospels. We see time and again through his ministry that he alludes to the fact that he will die on the cross. We see in Mark 8, 31, and also in Mark 10, uh, 33 to 34, that he says to his disciples that he predicts his death, he prophesies his death. And the disciples don't really know what that means at that point, um, but they're like, okay, Jesus, that's fine, you, you say that. But he is fully aware of what is going to happen. And the context of this passage is this is an incredibly dark uh, moment for Jesus in his life. He's had the Last Supper where he said, one of you will betray me, and um, everyone's worked out that that is Judas, and Judas has gone off. He's gone to get his 30 pieces of silver. He's gone to get his uh, cronies uh, to pick up Jesus. So he's disappeared, and he's also said to his disciples that each of you will desert, and you will, you will leave me, you will flee me. And then Peter's like, of course we won't. No, we will never leave. And he says, before the cock crows twice, Peter, even you will desert me, deny me three times. So with this in mind, Jesus comes to this garden, and he comes to pray. He says to his disciples in verse 32, sit here while I pray. And in the passage of this, uh, this version of this passage in Luke, it says that Jesus went as usual 
to the Mount of Olives. So this was a place that he went regularly to spend time with his father. He went to that quiet place to speak to his heavenly father. And he knew the battle he was to face. He knew the battle of the beatings, the battle of the cross, the crucifixion, and ultimately his death. He knew what was coming, and he prepared for it by praying. He knew that moment. He wasn't taken by surprise. It wasn't like, oh, all of a sudden, this is what's happening. He knew exactly what was coming. It wasn't hidden from him, and he prayed. He also knew that in this moment, there would be maybe a moment of doubt, there would be a moment of weakness, and that the devil would come and would tempt. And we see this because in Luke 4, uh, or in many passages, but particularly Luke 4, it says that uh, Jesus was, um, he was tempted in the wilderness, and three times he denied the devil. But then after that moment, it says in Luke 4, 13, that when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, if there's ever an opportune time, this is the moment. This would be it, where Jesus is um, feeling that pressure, feeling that darkness, that maybe the devil would come and tempt him now. He knows that battle that is there, and Jesus prays. He prays. He gets down on his knees, he speaks to his heavenly Father, and he prays. He knows that what is going to happen on the cross, the start of that battle, the preparation for that battle, starts in the garden. It doesn't start when he's on that cross. It starts right here, right now, in the garden, through that prayer. And um, in the sporting world, um, there's been a lot of research that has gone into the mental side of sport recently. Um, people have worked out that rather than just um, training your bodies, physically training um, how you're able to get harder, faster, stronger, that actually there's a mental game to sport as well that, that comes up, and that's become much more prominent uh, in recent years. Uh, the boxing world has been doing it for years. Um, if anyone has ever um, watched press conferences of boxing, I mean, like, they just so much trash talk that they throw against the other people, and it's almost like they're throwing um, psychological punches uh, to the people before they've even got in the ring. It's almost like they're loosening them up physically by trying to jibe at them mentally. And Muhammad Ali, he was amazing at at any press conference, any kind of pre-mental kind of mental game, he would always kind of get people riled up, get people kind of softened up by jibing these incredible press conferences, saying these outlandish things that no, no person in their right mind would ever say. But he would say these just to kind of soften that person up. And then he knew almost by then he'd got them. If they were riled up by that in the press conference, he's like, I've got you in the ring. I know exactly what I'm doing. He prepared in that way. And um. This year, only a few weeks ago, there was the amazing Calcutta Cup match, wasn't there, between England and Scotland, where uh, Scotland were 31-0 down. It looked like it was all dead. And then they drew 38-all with the English. And um, after the game, the first like kind of press conference that Eddie Jones, the English coach, said, um, he said that we, they needed, the English team needed to get a mental specialist in to work with his players. And he said this. He said... Um, he's, got, he's Australian, I'm not going to try the accent. For a second I thought I would, but I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to do it. Uh, it's like we have some hand grenades in the back of a Jeep, and sometimes they go off when there's pressure. And as a proud, kilt-wearing Scotsman, uh, watching Die Hard, uh, Die Hard, watching Braveheart on repeat, I watch Die Hard on repeat, but Braveheart on repeat, I look at that quote and I think, ha we've got you, we've got, this, we've got the English. 
But in all seriousness, in all seriousness, the battle many of us are facing is often here, isn't it? It's often in our heads. It's often those things, those thoughts that we're like, I don't know what's going to happen. The fear of not knowing, the fear of missing out, all those things that are in our Those are the battles that we often face. What are those hand grenades that can go off when we're under pressure? What are those situations we find that we're like, I just can't deal with it? Is it the bill dropping through the letterbox? The test results from the doctor? The meeting with the boss? The conversation with the spouse? The Google search bar late at night? What are the areas that could be hand grenades in our lives? Those are things that we can think about. That those we recognize. Those are the pressure moments. And then, how amazing would it be if we recognize those moments and then turn to prayer as soon as we could see those coming? How amazing would it be when we prepare for that beforehand and we know, I know this could create pressure in my life. So I'm going to contend for that before the battle. I'm going to contend for that in the garden in prayer. What difference would that make before the big meeting we prepared in prayer? Before we look at our budget, we prepared in prayer. Before the crucial conversation we need to have with someone, we prepared in prayer. Before every great victory, it seems to me, in the Lord, we have to have that Gethsemane prayer moment. Before there's that victory on the cross, Jesus has that prayer moment in Gethsemane. So for us in our lives, when there's those victory moments, we need to have them rooted and established in prayer with our Heavenly Father. Pressure wants us to play defense in life. It wants us to always be on the back foot. But prayer allows us to bring these situations before God. And with Him, He will bring us back onto the front foot. We have an incredible opportunity to speak intimately with our Father in Heaven and prepare us for the battles that we face. Prayer prepares us for battle. It's also strengthened in partnership. We've seen from this previous point that Jesus has a really intimate and personal uh, prayer with his Father. There's intimacy between the second and the first member of the Trinity. It's very personal. Jesus calls uh, his Father God Abba, which is a deep sign of intimacy. It's effectively saying Daddy. That would be the kind of intimacy of that. Very close, relational. But also from this passage, we see that prayer can be strengthened uh, through partnership. And the disciples here don't give us a great example of that as they fall asleep. But it shows that we can partner with others in prayer with that. Jesus, in the darkest moment, he takes his three closest disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John. He says, stay here and keep watch. They fall asleep. They let him down. And we're human. We're broken. And the reality is sometimes we'll let people down. Sometimes I've let people down, I know that. And I'm sorry for that. But we see how often, later on in the next couple of passages, how often when we know someone's under pressure, and they're they're our mates, we find there's two reactions that we have, isn't there? Two human reactions that we often have. We have fight or flight. So in the next couple of passages, as we move on in the book of Mark, you'll see these moments where the disciples try to fight for Jesus, and also then they flight. They flee away from those situations. So um, just after this moment, Judas comes to arrest Jesus. I absolutely love this moment in the Bible. It's so funny. Um, Mark 14, 47, Peter comes up and like Judas has got all his cronies, he's got all his guys. And then, and then 
Peter comes and he gets a sword out of his, out of his kind of sheath and he goes to one of the, the guys and he goes, ha ha! And he like chops his ear off. I just think if you're going to take on someone and you're going to go to fighting, it's like, ah, I'll take your ear. You won't be able to hear this side, but that side. I just find it really funny. I was like, gosh. But then maybe we would do that, wouldn't we? He drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. And then Jesus, I imagine, not that it says this in the Bible, but Jesus, I imagine, just kind of turns and looks at him and goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? What, why the ear? That's always what I want to know. But Jesus says, what, what are you doing? That is not the way that I have said, do you come at me with swords and clubs because I'm inciting a rebellion? No, that's not what he's doing. He's always come in peace. But Peter, like, he wants to stick up for his mate, and he said, and he's going to write, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight his battles for him. And how often do we find that when we're supporting our friends, who are under pressure, do we draw the sword, do we fight their battles for them? Do we turn to fight mode without thinking? We can do that, can't we? We can think, oh, there's been, someone's fallen out with someone, so therefore I'm going to take sides. I'm going to make an us and them mentality. We turn that almost into a bigger thing than it actually needs to be. Because we're like, all right, we've got the boxing gloves on. We'll do that for them. We'll support them. Jesus is saying, that's not the way I want you to support your people. That's not the way I want you to support your brothers and sisters. The other option we see in a few verses later in Mark, where our friends might be going through a tough time, and we withdraw. It's too much for us. We can't handle it. In Mark 14, at 50 to 52, it says, Then everyone deserted him and fled when he's been arrested. A one follower fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Again, it's a funny moment, isn't it? Where just he's like, oh, I just need to run so much that I've actually forgotten my clothes. It can be so easy to flee, isn't it? When people are under pressure, when people are struggling, you just say, I can't deal with it. I just need to remove myself from the situation. But we leave them deserted. We leave them flee in that situation. Fight or flight, that's the options the world gives us. But Jesus gives us another way. He says couple of times in this passage. Verse 34, stay here and keep watch. Verse 38, watch and pray. Jesus says the best way we can be in partnership with him and with others is to pray. We don't fight. We don't get our swords out. We don't run away. But we stand with our friends in pre- when pressure comes and we pray. And that doesn't mean that we take that on at all means that we stand with him and we give it to God. We bring it to him. And the truth is that for many of us, we've let people down. We've said, I'm praying for you, and then we've forgotten. We've had good intentions, but we've not let that out. We've fallen asleep. And that's, I'm saying that today as in a not to make us feel bad, just to recognize that, that we can do that. But we can draw a line under the sand today and say, actually, from this day forth, we're not going to do that. But actually, my encouragement is that we um, just allow ourselves to not flee from the situations, but to pray. And that can be as simple as that when we meet with someone, we listen to them, and before we give any advice of what we think we should do, we just say, why don't we just pray? Simple as that. Why don't we just pray? And I've been challenged myself when I've been meeting with people just to make sure I do that, just to pray. Or even if I haven't had that opportunity when we've been talking, just before I leave them, I said, I'd just love to pray for you. Just here, just now. Put my hand on your shoulder and pray. Or um, in our small group, there's been a couple of people who've had job interviews recently, and I've just asked them when their job interview is, and then 10 minutes before their job interview, 
I put it in my uh, phone diary, say, pray for X. So then, 10 minutes before, I can just say, oh, there's an alert on my phone that says, you need to pray. A little prayer, just say, for that person praying for you, hope it goes well. Very simple, very simple things that we can think, oh, it's so difficult. But actually, when we just think a little forward planning, think about that. We can strengthen them, we can strengthen us. How much will that encourage our friend if we do that? Prayer, uh, sorry, pressure wants to isolate us. It wants us to think that we're on our own. But prayer incorporates others into our lives. It strengthens us, it encourages us. And prayer is strengthened in partnership. And finally, prayer is an example of perfect submission. Jesus, in these moments, is described as being deeply distressed and troubled. His soul is overwhelmed to the point of death, is what it said. And other words to describe this are depressed, full of anguish, grieving. And he is in absolute agony. And we see that in Luke um, 22:44, it says he's in so much anguish that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And in his darkest moments, Jesus bears all to his father and he says, I don't think I can do this. If there's any other way, take this cup from me. But straight after that moment where he's like, I don't think I can do this, he says this, yet not what I will, but what you will. That is an incredible example of perfect submission. I don't think I can do this, Lord, but I trust you. Your ways are bigger than mine. You're bigger than my situation. You can see beyond what I can see. I trust you, but I need help. When we pray, we magnify who God is. And in so doing so, we minimize the size of our issues, the size of our pressures, and we see them for what they truly are. And we see God for who he truly is. Jesus is facing more pressure than we can ever imagine. The, the pressure of the cross of being abandoned by his, uh, by his father for our sakes. And he perfectly submits. Um, my wife Jill, for those of you who don't know my wife Jill, she absolutely loves the Harry Potter kind of franchise, series, books, films. Uh, I have some close friends who enjoy that too. I'm not as massive a fan of Harry Potter. Like, I'm like a casual fan. So I watched the films, never read the books. I'm getting some heat here. Um, I've been to the theme parks. They're pretty cool. But I'm not like a huge Harry Potter fan. But there's this moment, right? So the main narrative, if you've never heard about Harry Potter, the main narrative is effectively, um, I might get this wrong, but there's like a battle against good and evil where um, Harry is on the good side and Lord Voldemort, he's the Dark Lord, he's on the bad side. So that's kind of what you need to know, effectively. There's more to it than that, I know. But there's a moment, right? There's a moment where Harry and his uh, mentor, teacher, Dumbledore, are trying to um, kill Voldemort. And the way they need to do this is Voldemort's been sneaky, right? And he has imparted his soul. You'll need to go with me a bit. He's imparted his soul onto certain different objects and items. So there are seven things that he's imparted his soul onto so that if he was physically dead, he would still live on. Okay? We got that? And these things are called horcruxes. So this part of the, the narrative is that Dumbledore and Harry need to find these horcruxes. I mean, they're like MacGuffins, basically, if you know what that means. But like these are objects that they need to find. They need to destroy them, and then they can destroy Voldemort physically. We with, you with me? Good. Five people are with me. That's good. Um, so so there's these items, and um, basically 
in this moment, in the best film, which is The Half-Blood Prince, um, Harry and Dumbledore, they're searching for this Horcrux. And they come to an underground lake. And in the middle of this lake, there is a basin where there's this locket in the basin. And that is a Horcrux. So they need to destroy it. And they try and pick up the, the locket. But there's this, this kind of liquid, this water that's there, um, that actually they need to drink that first in order to get the locket. So there's this water. They can't pick it up until every single drop of that liquid has gone. And Harry and Dumbledore are like, okay. Harry's like, I can do it. And it's like, Dumbledore's like, no, no, no. You're, you're, too, um, you're too important. I will drink this. So, and what it turns out is this drink is called the drink of despair. Okay? And uh, the drink of despair reminds the drinker of the worst moments in their lives. So Harry starts feeding Dumbledore this uh, liquid. And obviously he's in complete agony. All these things where it's the worst moments of his life he's been reminded of. He's been reminded of. And he's like, oh, I can't drink anymore. I can't drink anymore. And each time Harry has to go up and make sure that he drinks it. And Dumbledore beforehand has said, whatever happens, make sure I finish every drop. So he's like in this submission moment where he's like, I can't take any more. But I know I need to do this. So he keeps getting fed. And as you can imagine, he, he drinks every drop. He gets the locket. But the point of that was that that is a tiny glimpse of what Jesus faced. The cup that is spoken about in this passage was the cup of wrath. And that was filled drop by drop. That every time we have sinned, every time we've gone away from God, each one of us has filled. And it's almost like this cup uh, of God's wrath is hanging over our heads. And on the table where the cup of wrath is, Jesus is sitting with his father. And he's saying, Dad, is there any other way? tears in his eyes. Is there any other way? Do I have to drink this? And with tears in his eyes, God the Father responds, Son, we both know the only way for salvation for each one of us, for each one of those people in the world, is you must drink every drop. At the cross of Jesus, we see that when there is that cup of wrath for Jesus, so that when we die, there would not be that hatred, that wrath for us, just love. At the Garden of Eden, we saw the fall of humanity. In this garden, we see the start of redemption of humanity through the cross. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve so that we don't have to. And the technical term we use for that is propitiation. Propitiation. Ugh, can't do my P's on it. I told you there was lots of P's. Propitiation, which is the appeasement of God's wrath. So God pours this uh, wrath on himself so we can have love, which he which is for us. And 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the pressure Jesus was facing. And he went into prayer and perfectly submitted to God. When we turn to prayer over pressure, no matter what our situation, we can have that peace that he is in control. That he is bigger than our situation and we trust him. We let God be God and submit to him. Pressure tries to minimize God, but prayer magnifies the Lord and minimizes our situations. When we pray, we're perfectly submitted to God and saying, I trust you, Lord. I need you. So prayer prepares us for battles. Prayer um, is strengthened in partnership and it, prayer is, is perfect submission. But I want to finish and talk about what are the positive things that come from pressure. And um, 
in the chemical elements, you might know that the fourth most abundant element in the universe is carbon. And um, carbon can make lots of things. And the primary form of carbon uh, as a solid is kind of black and gray. It doesn't look like much. But what happens when carbon is under intense heat and pressure under the Earth's core is that it forms something amazing. Does anyone know what carbon forms when under that intense heat and pressure? Yes. Diamonds. Good job. Good job, Joseph and Ramsey. I saw your hands. Well done. You've been taking science. Um, diamonds. Under that immense heat and pressure, diamonds are formed. Diamonds are immensely beautiful. They're highly sought after. And they're the hardest known mineral. And when the heat comes under the surface, when we pray, God can create diamonds out of those moments, can't he? My prayer for us is in our pressure moments, we turn to Jesus and he will bless us with his presence. We'll see his beauty in our situation He'll give us perseverance and we'll live in a way that people look at us and say, I want that. I want what you have. Pressure can create diamonds out of those situations. Why don't we stand and I'll pray for us.